1992, the author and radio host Gary Chapman published a book entitled The Five Love Languages. Perhaps you've heard of it. In it, he suggests that romantic partners tend to express love to one, one another in one of five ways. Words of affirmation, quality time, physical touch, acts of service, and giving or receiving gifts. Now, while I tend to struggle with the implication that we can all be sorted into one of five categories, I do think it is helpful to be reminded that we all interact with and inhabit the world in different ways, and that that's okay. I also think any tool that helps us learn something about ourselves can be useful to a point. I still love the Myers-Briggs, even though I know it's pseudoscience. <laughs> and one of the things that I have learned about myself over the years in reference to Mr. Chapman's book is that my love language is decidedly not gift-giving. <laughs> Indeed, my wife will tell you that I am a famously bad gift-giver. If there is an occasion when giving a gift is appropriate, it is more likely than not that I will fail to come up with anything or else will select something perfunctory at the last minute. I realize this is not a unique affliction. There are many men in particular, for whatever reason, who tend to struggle with gift giving. At least that's what I tell myself. <laughs> I do feel like I am unusually bad at it though. I'm not like bragging, I'm just saying. <laughs> in my defense, I suppose, I'm not that great at receiving gifts either. I'd rather get nothing at all. In fact, I'm proud to say now that I've learned that you shouldn't say, oh, I already have one of these when somebody gives you something. <laughs> I'm not proud to admit that it took me an awfully long time to learn that. And to be clear, it's not that I don't care. It's not that I don't care. In fact, I have the best of intentions. I spend what is probably an inordinate amount of time thinking about the fact that it would be appropriate for me to give someone a gift. And then I spend even more time recognizing that I need to go about procuring that gift. But for whatever reason, I just can't pull the trigger. <laughs> I want to be better. I'm trying to be better. But until that happens, I will have to continue hoping that the old adage is true, that it's the thought that counts. <laughs> but in our gospel reading this morning, Jesus offers a parable that calls this notion into question. Jesus tells the story of two sons who are act, asked to work in the vineyard by their father. The first son refuses, but eventually comes around and honors his father's request. The second son does the opposite, initially agreeing to do as his father asked, but failing to fulfill the request. When Jesus asked which of the sons did the will of his father, the answer is pretty cut and dry, even for those notoriously evasive religious authorities. It was the first son who actually did the will of his father. 
The good intentions of the second son could not overcome his failure to do what his father asked. Apparently, the thought doesn't count for much, at least in this particular context. And in this sense, the meaning of this parable appears to be fairly straightforward. Don't be like the second son, be like the first son. This is certainly the message my father would impart to me when he quoted this passage from Matthew's Gospel. It was one of his favorites. <laughs> and while this is probably right, I do think it is worth asking ourselves another question. A clarifying question. In what way are we called to be like the second son? In what way are we called to be like the second son? Is this just a story about being obedient, about doing what we are told, even when we don't want to? Or is there something else going on? Now, in order to answer this question, we need to consider the broader context in this section of Matthew's Gospel. Jesus tells this parable in the midst of an exchange with the religious authorities who have just confronted him with this question. By whose authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Now, it's worth remembering that these things, the thing that the religious authorities are referring to is the temple incident that moment when Jesus enters the temple in Jerusalem and turns over the tables of the money changers. And so the religious authorities are standing in the midst of the doves flying around and the coins scattered on the floor of the court of the Gentiles. And they are asking Jesus, who does something like this? Or more pointedly, who do you think you are? And Jesus responds by asking the chief priests and the elders where John the Baptist got his authority. It feels like a non sequitur, but Jesus places himself in the same category as this other charismatic figure who questioned religious institutions. The priests and elders smell a trap. And they refuse to answer the question, leading Jesus to shift into the parable of the man and his two sons. And while it might feel like Jesus is changing the subject, there's a key detail in this parable that not only connects it to the rest of the exchange, not only connects it to the rest of the gospel, but also points to something essential about the Christian life. Notice that the father does not just send his sons to work out in the fields to do generic work. The father sends his sons out into a vineyard, a place where they have the opportunity to cultivate and bear fruit. And bearing fruit is one of the central themes 
in Matthew's gospel. It comes up over and over again. John the Baptist challenges those who gather at the Jordan to bear fruit worthy of repentance. Later on in the gospel, when John sends his disciples to ask if Jesus is truly the Messiah, Jesus points to the fruit that his ministry has borne. He does not say, yep, you got it. I have been anointed by God as the Messiah. Instead, he replies to this question about his messianic identity, this yes or no question, by saying, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. Jesus points to the fruit his ministry has borne. Because it is only when we bear fruit that we truly acknowledge who we are. It is only when we bear fruit that we truly embrace who we are called to be. The first brother's error then was not that he was disobedient. It was that he squandered his ability and his opportunity to bear fruit in the vineyard. The message of this parable is clear. Intentions don't count for anything if you don't at least try. If you have the ability to go out and bear fruit, then that is what you must do. Today is the first Sunday in October. And while there's not a particular liturgical observance associated with this day, though we are celebrating Tamashalawa Africa this afternoon, this day does begin a sort of liturgical season, because it's when we typically begin our annual stewardship campaign. That time when we invite you to consider your financial commitment to this parish for the coming budget year. And this year, our stewardship theme is inspired by Jesus' first miracle at Cana of Galilee, which is depicted actually in our west window there. You go over one panel and then up to the top, and it depicts the wedding at Cana. And as I think about this story, I realize that it has a lot of resonances with the text we heard this morning. The second chapter of John's Gospel tells us that Jesus and several others, including his mother, attend a wedding in Cana. At one point during the festivities, the wine runs out, which in a culture that valued hospitality would have been deeply embarrassing. Mary explains the host's predicament to her son, leading him to reply, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? Now, we might fault Jesus for his brusque reply, especially to his mother, but it's hard not to see his point. 
Why, why is it his job to make sure the celebration continue? What responsibility does he have for the embarrassment of the hosts? But despite all this, the mother of Jesus turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. There's something wonderfully maternal about this moment. Mary knows that Jesus is going to do what his mother asks him to do, regardless of his initial refusal. But more significantly, Mary understands something essential about what it means to live in community. That it is our ability to make a difference that creates our responsibility to one another. It is our ability to make a difference that creates our responsibility to one another. More than our interest, more than our intentions, it's our ability that shapes our responsibility to the community. If we have the ability to go out and bear fruit, then we are called to go out and bear fruit. And we all have this ability. We all have the ability to bear fruit. Each one of us has the ability and the opportunity to com contribute something unique and essential to the life of this community. And so as we enter this stewardship season, and indeed as we move through all the changes and chances of this life, I invite you to consider this question. How might we bear fruit for one another? <laughs>